It is uh, such a delight to be back together with you all this morning. We are going to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and a passage that speaks to the issue of what it means to be spiritual. How do you identify a spiritual person? What is a clear and unmistakable evidence of the Spirit of God at work in a person's life? I entitled this sermon, Recovering Genuine Spirituality, because this issue has been hijacked and redefined in the church today. And there may be several factors contributing to that. Some of it might just be ignorance or laziness. We just haven't really studied the scriptures to define what it means to be spiritual or or look at what are the evidences of the Spirit of God. And we might tend to measure spirituality today based on certain things that Christians do. You know, for example, a, a person, maybe they're a prayer warrior, we refer to them that way, and they pray for two hours every morning before they do anything else, and we might say, that's so spiritual. Or a person memorizes a lot of scripture, you know, they read the book of Isaiah every day before they do anything else, and we might say, that is, that is spiritual. Or a person evangelizes every stranger they come in contact with, they're so spiritual. Or a person who teaches, or preaches, well, they're, they're so spiritual because they're, they're the preacher. So all those things are great, but in and of themselves, they don't indicate a work of the Spirit of God or that the person is spiritual. But there's another reason, certainly a far greater reason that we might be confused on that topic of what it means to be spiritual And I would say it is due to the influence of the charismatic movement. I would suggest that the vast amount of errors and confusion about being of the Spirit, what does it mean to be spiritual, is due in large part to that movement. In fact, if you were to ask me, in in my opinion, what is the most harmful and dangerous doctrine that is tolerated, accepted, and promoted in greater evangelicalism today, I would have no hesitation in answering the charismatic movement. Practically, the, the charismatic theology holds that God is speaking outside of his word today. What does that look like? Well, it means that he speaks today in unintelligible, ecstatic speech, referred to as tongues. He also speaks today through somewhat accurate general statements regarding, or referred to as prophecy. And if you've been a part of our ministry over the past year, you know that I, I taught an eight-week series on charismatic theology, exposing the errors, correcting them with Scripture, and that's before we even looked at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And that means we spent about half a year, at least, talking about these things, and one might conclude based on that, Eric, it seems like you have some kind of personal vendetta against charismatic doctrine. I mean, you seem to be talking about it an awful lot these days. And I'd say, yeah, I I am talking about it a lot these days, but it is not a a vendetta. It is an abiding pastoral grief and concern. Uh, As I as I look at the impact that that theology has on individuals in the church. There are many erroneous doctrines and practices that are just out there in greater evangelicalism. And just because they are being taught in the church somewhere doesn't mean that we're going to be focusing on them. 
For instance, we haven't done an eight-week series on critical race theory or homosexuality or transgenderism or really any of the other woke uh, theology points out there today. We haven't done that. Why? You're not confused about it. You're not listening to that stuff. You're not reading those books. You're not coming to us with questions. How should I be thinking about that? No, your, your discernment is right where it should be. It's been an encouragement uh, witnessing that in our church. So we don't have to talk about error. We don't have to bring up things that you're not vulnerable to, that you're not confused about, that you're not struggling with. The same is not true for charismatic theology. And that doesn't mean that we're struggling in our church on whether or not to speak in tongues or whether or not we should be prophesying over one another. That, that's certainly not something that, that we see. But it is to say that many of us do struggle with a charismatic hangover. Maybe we were saved in a charismatic ministry and we were in a ministry for a while. We learned the language. We, we looked at some passages through that lens. But for whatever reason, we, we were no longer comfortable with that movement and that theology. So we left and we tried to find a cessationist ministry. One that believes that tongues and prophecy, those things were associated with the apostolic office. Those are no longer in operation today. And here you are. And the majority of you agree, in theory, with cessationism. And you agree, in theory, that God is no longer speaking outside of his word today. You know the canon is closed. You would affirm scripture is authoritative. It is sufficient for everything we need. However, those who consistently live out the implications of that would be much fewer. In practice... It is, it is easy to affirm Scripture alone, but in practice we might say Scripture plus. In many different ways, we might live as if God is still speaking outside of his word today. How do you know if you're in that category? Well, do you believe God speaks to you through providential circumstances, like signs or fleeces? Or open or close doors? Does God reveal what he wants you to do based on if you start to move this direction, he makes it a lot harder and he's giving you a hint, no, no, don't do this, turn around and go this direction, make this decision, and everything works out perfectly. Did God speak to you in an open and closed door? Some believe that God speaks to them by giving an inner peace. You have a big, significant life decision, you're thinking about it, and all of a sudden you experience this, this peace, this abiding peace, so you know, yep, God's confirming it. He's confirming what he wants me to do. Or maybe you believe God speaks through dreams or visions. Or what about inner promptings, strong impressions, holy hunches that we attribute to the Holy Spirit leading us toward a particular decision? Well, all of those are examples of being a functional charismatic, even though on paper we might affirm, I'm a cessationist. I don't believe God speaks outside of his word. So that's one very dangerous and harmful component of charismatic theology. But there's another one, and that's also a significant concern, and that is the tendency to measure spirituality by one's experience. I spoke in tongues. I was baptized. I felt the presence of God. I feel near to God. I feel far from God. I need to seek his presence. And so oftentimes, spirituality is measured by an experience you did or did not have. That's how you gauge how spiritual you are. And this is the pastoral burden that I have that compels me to, to continue to heighten our awareness to these things. 
It grieves me when I see believers lacking assurance because someone told them they should look inward and evaluate their feelings to determine, am I a believer? Do I have the Spirit of God in me? It grieves me when I... When I see Christians who are making significant life decisions impacting the trajectory of their lives, but they're doing so based on the assumption God's going to make me feel a certain way. He's going to give me a sign that I, that this is the right decision. God is leading us to do this. God is leading us to do that. How do I know his peace, his nudging in that direction? In fact, that's one of the most common questions I get as a pastor. How do I make this practical life decision where God hasn't said thou shalt not and he hasn't said thou shall. It's a gray area. How do I make this decision? That's probably the most common question I get. And often the confusion about it is because we are not taught how to apply wisdom and move forward in faith. We're rather waiting for God to verify a decision we want to make and we're looking for signs or feelings for that to take place. And this is all apparently what it means to be spiritual. You listen for his voice. You allow him to lead you in those ways. That's how to have this authentic relationship with him. And I fear what's happening today is that we are attributing so much to the spirit of God that is merely manufactured by man. And we've lost the meaning of what it means to be spiritual. We've lost the ability to discern where is the Spirit of God at work and where is the Spirit of God absent. And there was a church in the New Testament that struggled with this very thing. In fact, it's a church that serves as a fitting illustration of the church in greater America today. There's a lot in common, and that is the church in Corinth. There's a lot of things that that the church today has in common with Corinth, but one for sure is the inability to discern where the Spirit of God is at work. What does a genuine spiritual person look like as opposed to counterfeit, or an entire ministry as opposed to counterfeit? The inability to tell the difference. As we look at the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 12, we know that there was widespread confusion or disagreement about that very issue. In the Corinthian church. How do we know that? Well, look at how verse 1 begins. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Now we'll get to the issue of why gifts is in italics in a moment. But that phrase, now concerning, that, that informs us that this is a topic they had previously written to Paul about and he's now responding to their question. How, how do we know that? If you read through the whole letter, you would find that phrase, now concerning, that's a typical introductory formula he uses to indicate I'm responding to something you wrote to me about. What might their question have sounded like? I would love to have what their question specifically was. We don't have it, unfortunately. But as we look at Paul's answer in verses 2 to 3, and knowing the whole context of the book, it was probably something like this. What is the evidence of a spiritual person? How do we tell what is a genuine work of the Spirit of God? Specifically with the Corinthians, are spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy, are those evidence of the Spirit of God or spiritual maturity? How do we know if someone's spiritual or not? Paul's response is verses 1 through 3. Now let's just look at verse 1 again before we get into our outline. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. We have a very significant interpretive call to make here, and it's going to impact how we understand this passage. 
you might notice that the word gifts is in italics, if you have an NASB, maybe indicated in other versions as well. And that is appropriately indicating that the word gifts is not in the text. Here's how it literally reads. Now concerning spirituals. And because it appears on the front end of chapter 12, many just assume, well, he goes on to talk about gifts, so he's talking about gifts right here as well. And so they add in that word gifts for the sake of clarification. And if that's the meaning here, the first three verses are given so that the church can test and distinguish between true spiritual gifts and false gifts. Here's how you know if someone's speaking on behalf of God. Here's how you can recognize a false prophet. And that is a common view of the passage, but that's not what I believe it means. I believe it's much broader than that. Here's why I say that. That phrase, or that that word for spirituals, it is associated with spiritual gifts. We see that in chapter 14. But gifts have not been referenced yet in chapter 12. Notice, he doesn't get to the language of gifts until verse 4. Now, there are a varieties of gifts, and that's a different word, charisma. That's Paul's typical word to refer to gifts. Furthermore, the word for spirituals in verse 1 If you trace it throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, it predominantly refers to individuals. It refers to people. And I want to look at a few of these. Go back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. We're just going to do a quick survey here to get a grasp of how Paul uses this word spirituals. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. And now here it is literally. Here's what it says. Explaining spirituals to spirituals. And the idea there is explaining spiritual truth, spiritual things, to spiritual people. But now notice the contrast in verse 14. But... A natural man. So in contrast to the spiritual man, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So again, notice it's speaking about individuals there, and in this passage, it is only those who who are spiritual, as in they have the Spirit of God, who will accept the things of the Spirit. They're going to rightly discern. They'll make an accurate assessment. When the truth comes, they're going to say, yep, that's divine. I need to trust that. I need to live under that. I need to live by that authority. Now notice chapter 3, verse 1. He uses the term again. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to, literally, spirituals. As to spirituals. But as to men of flesh, as infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. So he does refer to them as infants in Christ. So he's not saying you're unbelievers, Corinthians. But he does indicate even though you might be believers, you might have the Spirit of God. I can't talk to you on that wavelength. I can't talk to you as if you were spiritual. Because your sin and unbelief has prevented you from receiving the things of the Spirit. All right, one more use of the word. 
skip ahead to 14, chapter 14, verse 37. We're going to come back to this at the end this morning, but just again to establish how Paul is using this word spirituals. 14.37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So there's an implied rebuke in this passage, and it's aimed at those who have a self-professed spirituality and significance. And for some, this placed them above apostolic instruction. They didn't know what it meant to be spiritual. The Corinthians thought knowledge makes us spiritual. Spiritual association and privileges, being, being around the people of God, being under the truth, that makes us spiritual. They thought having certain gifts and exercising them, that's what makes us spiritual. So this group here saw themselves as we are the ones who have that extra dose of the spirit. We are the spirit-bearing elite in Corinth. We have a monopoly on the spirit. And so he reminds them here, no amount of gifting, no amount of influence places you above apostolic authority. In fact, first base of being spiritual is coming under apostolic instruction. So we can see that predominantly in this letter, when Paul uses the term spiritual, he's referring to people. And I think the same is true back in chapter one, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse one. He's using the term spirituals to refer to identifying or speaking to those who are of the spirit. How do we know those who are spiritual? Is there an elite class within the church of spiritual ones? A spirit-filled elite. How does he answer that? Well, notice what he says in verse 1. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant with regard to to what are the manifestations of the Spirit in a person's life. To inform their ignorance, Paul draws their attention to two keys in recognizing genuine spirituality. Two keys in recognizing genuine spirituality. The first key, acknowledge one's prior condition. Acknowledge one's prior condition. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Paul describes their former life as pagans. It's just a terminology that refers to unbelievers living in the world like the world. And notice, when you were pagans, you were led astray. It's talking about their prior state, their prior condition. And the emphasis there is on being led. He actually uses two different words that that carry the, the idea of being led both of them in the passive voice. So it's repeated, repeated action in past time. You were continuously over and over led. You were carried away again and again. Not an active conscious choice, but it wasn't against your will. The idea is you allowed yourself to be taken captive, led astray to mute idols. Mute idols, that is indicating no life, no speech, no revelation. No answers, no existence. This is what you worshipped as pagans. If you want a reference for that, Habakkuk 2.18 and following, you can look at the profitless, senseless worship of idols that man created himself and then bows down and worships him. 
Back to uh, verse 2 here. You were continuously led, the point here is, to irrational, false, senseless worship. And that's true of any unbeliever, not just the Corinthians. Whether or not they do it in the context of religion or even have a name for their false god, uh, they are in bondage to worshiping that which isn't real. A fictional substitute for the real God. The Corinthians, their gods had names. They had temples. They had worship services. False religion was flourishing in ancient Corinth. For us today, it's the God of self. Each individual determines what reality is based on how they feel, based on their own understanding. And that false worship is irrational because you, you created the God. You created it, and now you're bowing down and worshiping it. There's no forgiveness, no righteousness, no revelation, and yet this is what you worship. So Paul reminds them here in this passage of something that was true about their prior condition. You were continuously led to futile worship. Helpless yet culpable victims who know no better than to be worshiping demonically produced idols common objection given by unbelievers as the reason why they don't want to become Christians. Maybe you've heard this. I, I would become a Christian, but I don't want to give up my freedom. I, I don't want the restriction. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. And I would say, friend, yes, you can do whatever you want to do. You are free in that sense. But the problem is you can't want to do what you should do. You're not free to do what you should do, and therefore your state is not one of freedom. It is of bondage. Your condition is one of inability and unwillingness to seek the one true God and worship him. You're not free to be godly. You're not free to trust him. You're not free to live in a way that pleases him. You're only free to do what you desire, and your desire is always going to be toward evil, toward sin. That's why this very idea of freedom is one of the greatest lies and deception that the world believes. Thinking that you're free when you're in bondage, thinking that you're wise when you're a fool, thinking you're enlightened when you're ignorant, thinking you're good when you're evil, that is the epitome of being in bondage. Now, back to verse 2 here. Why is Paul bringing this up? Why... Why say to this church, you are continuously being led and carried away to senseless, false worship in bondage to idolatry? Why bring that up right here? He's bringing it up to set a contrast between what he's going to say in verse 3. So we don't get the punchline yet. All right, this is the first key in recognizing genuine spirituality. Acknowledge one's prior condition. This sets up the second key. Assess one's present confession. Assess one's present confession. Notice verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. That's kind of a confusing verse in our New Testament. Does this mean that there were some people in the church there that were actually uttering these words during a worship service? Jesus is accursed. This is the word anathema. Jesus is condemned and judged by God eternally. That would be the meaning. And I suppose there could be some well-meaning but misinformed Corinthians who, with this statement, maybe they were trying to capture the idea Jesus became a curse for us. 
That'd be best case scenario. And they just got the tense of the verb wrong because it says Jesus is accursed, not was accursed. The statement could also be referring to unbelieving Jews using the human name Jesus and not Messiah because they would never say the Messiah is cursed, but they would say Jesus, who in their eyes falsely claimed to be the Messiah. So it could be Jewish false teachers that were around that environment trying to influence the church. It could have also been a common a common statement in the false temples there in Corinth that we know were, were influenced by demons. And you had people speaking in those contexts saying Jesus is a curse. That, that would not be uh, hard to imagine in those contexts. I'm inclined to say that's what it was. Jesus is a curse would have been a common phrase used in those, in those temples of false worship in Corinth. And Paul's saying, anyone who's uttering these words, you're proving you're still in verse 2. You're led astray to mute idols. You're under the influence of, of a demon. Uh, that, that is an easy way to tell that you don't have the Spirit of God if you're still being influenced to declare something like that about Jesus. What about an obvious and clear way to know if you are of the Spirit of God? Well, that's verse, second half of verse 3. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Another confusing statement. Notice, no one, no exceptions, and this is referring to ability. No one can, so no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I stress the inability part up front so that we can immediately recognize this is not referring to simply uttering the words with your mouth. Sometimes we read that and we get confused because we think it's just talking about the words we're saying with our mouth. And then if somebody can say these words, well, they have the Spirit of God. So let's do altar calls. Let's invite people to pray the sinner's prayer because if we can get them to say Jesus is Lord, that proves they're saved. Well, verse 3 obviously doesn't mean that. Paul is not referring to lip service here. First of all, we should consider the gospel accounts. You remember the demons said a lot of things that were true about Christ, not by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was the Son of God. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, one demon said to, to Christ. Furthermore, the scriptures are clear that there are plenty of people who can articulate Jesus as Lord but are lost, who don't have the Holy Spirit. One of the clearest examples you probably already are aware of, Matthew 7, 21-23. You have a whole host of people before the Lord on the day of judgment saying what? Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And he articulates to them, I never knew you. They were not genuine believers. We're also reminded of Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you? So the scriptures are careful to caution us against placing any confidence, any value in a mere profession of faith, in mere words. Look at Romans 10.9. I'm sure that's a passage that, that's probably coming to your mind at this point as well. Romans 10.9. But again, if we pay attention to the details, we're going to see that Paul's not just talking about, about mere lip service here. <clears throat> That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he explains what he means. For with the heart a person believes, 
resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Notice that. The mouth confesses what the heart believes. The words coming out of one's mouth confirm what has taken place in the heart. If the reality of faith isn't in the heart, the words are pointless. They have no no substance. So back here in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians... What we have to recognize first is what it's not referring to, and that is simply articulating these words out of one's mouth. It does not take the Holy Spirit to say these actual words, just to mutter them. What's it emphasizing here? Well, when you see that word Lord, that is including his deity, but it's emphasizing his sovereign authority, his rightful rule over one's life. No one can say, no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's his point here? All right, Corinthians, you want to talk about being spiritual. You want to know one of the clearest evidences that the Spirit of God is at work in a person's life. Not those with the greatest amount of knowledge, not those with the showiest gifts. It is those who confirm with their mouth what's true in their heart. Jesus is Lord. So don't think or when you see that phrase, no one is able to say, think about it like this. No one is able to express their inner conviction, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Why is that a convincing manifestation of the Spirit? Because that's not how you and I would probably answer the question today if we didn't, didn't have this verse. But why is that a convincing manifestation? Because of verse 2. Because of who man is apart from Christ. Man's natural condition, the conviction, Jesus is Lord, that cannot possibly be the product of human insight, that cannot be derived from human will. How can a person go from verse 2, worshiping themselves, worshiping idols, blinded by sin, blinded by Satan, volitionally prejudiced against the truth, a serial idolater, how do they change that? How do they change their nature, turn from that bondage, that blindness, that deception to not only come to know who Jesus is, but rightfully submit to his rule? How does that happen? Only the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God is the only explanation. See, the leading of the Holy Spirit is not about telling you who to marry or which job to take or where to move or whether or not to start a business. No, The Spirit of God working in your heart, how do you recognize it? When it's inclining me to, when He is inclining me to come under the Lordship of Christ. That is the most obvious sign of spiritual life. That is the clearest and most obvious work of the Spirit. Likewise, one of the most obvious ways to tell when the Spirit of God is absent, when a person lives as though Jesus is accursed, when He's not Lord, so He's still in the grave. His. His ministry and life and death and resurrection have no bearing on my life. He may as well still be in the grave, accursed, cut off. That's the most obvious sign that someone's not spiritual, not of the Spirit. Do some Christians have more of the Spirit than others? What's Paul's answer? Clearly no. No. Those who confess Jesus as Lord, live lives in submission to him, those are the spiritual ones. Those are the ones who have the Spirit. If you're in Christ this morning, the most supernatural thing, 
The most miraculous thing about your life is you trust in Christ and submit to him as Lord. And yet, doesn't that sound foreign? It sounds so strange to us in our day. We hear that, and that's just not our first instinct. We wouldn't say that, and I, I would suggest that for, for two reasons it might seem strange to us. First, we really don't understand verse 2. We really don't understand our condition before Christ. We've never understood that we were dead. What does that mean? It means dead. Uh, unwilling, unable to please God. Unwilling, unable to seek God, obey God, live for God, trust in God. Volitionally prejudiced against the truth, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So maybe we just haven't understood the, the radical depravity that we were saved out of. But a second reason is probably, probably a greater reason. We've adopted our idea of the supernatural and the miraculous from the charismatic movement rather than scripture. See, we are told by the charismatic movement, the evidence that the spirit of God is at work, the evidence that you're spiritual is you sense God's presence. You speak in tongues. You're baptized by the Spirit. We are told that you cessationists, you're afraid of the supernatural. You're afraid of the miraculous. You're putting God in a box. I would say, no, we're just wanting to identify what can only be attributed to the Spirit. And it's interesting, when Paul was asked this question by the Corinthian church, a church that was obsessed with the charismatic gifts, his answer probably shocked them. And it would probably shock the charismatic movement today. Feeling the prompting in the spirit, speaking in incoherent babble, giving partially accurate prophecies, what's miraculous about that? What's supernatural about that? See, I would say it's the charismatic movement that has too low a view of the miraculous. Because everything it attributes to the spirit of God can be explained naturally. There's a natural explanation for all of it. But what isn't there an explanation for? When a person who's in bondage to idolatry, unable, unwilling to accept the truth, they're raised from their spiritual grave to new life in Christ. They now live and die for him. How do you explain that apart from the Spirit of God? That's Paul's point. Our prior condition, enslaved to false worship, and one's present confession, Jesus as Lord, and living in light of that. Those are the spiritual ones. Now, there's a great illustration of this a little later in 1 Corinthians. So go back to 1 Corinthians 14. We referenced it earlier. This section here in chapter 14 is a summary conclusion of everything he's been instructing them on tongues and prophecy. And we can infer from these verses that Paul expects there to be opposition. He expects there to be resistance from some in the church. He anticipates that they're going to use their experience and their gifts to justify the reckless and loveless way in which they were operating in their church. And maybe they would even use the same arguments people try to use today. But we don't want to limit how God might work. We don't want to put God in a box. We don't want to quench the spirit. I have this great gift. Why can't I use it in the way that I want to? So notice how Paul begins in verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? Are you the original prophets, Corinthians? Did the ministry of revelation originate with you and has it remained in Corinth? Do you have a monopoly on the truth, exclusive rights to the 
prophetic ministry, what's he anticipating there? He is going after those who are operating in self-willed independence from other ministries, basically saying we have a right because we're experiencing prophecy in tongues. We can, we can operate however we want. And God's revelation to us makes us exempt from having to follow the pattern of others. And what happens when we believe God is speaking to us and therefore we can do ministry how we want? What happens is we believe, we believe that lie and we baptize disobedience in the name of being faithful to God in ministry. I was thinking of an example of this that happened back in October 2019 with a, uh, remember a bit of controversy at that time with Beth Moore. If you don't know who Beth Moore is, she's a, a, uh, a female Bible teacher and author of several books. And historically, there's been a few concerns about her ministry. One is that she frequently preaches to audiences full of men. And secondly, she will tell on occasion of how she hears directly from God. So receiving direct revelation from God. And back in 2019, there was a criticism that came her way questioning her ministry Uh, primarily because she continued to preach to audiences full of men, which is in violation of 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. And it's her response to that criticism that I want to highlight. Here's what she said. I did not surrender to a calling of man when I was 18 years old. I surrendered to a calling of God. It never occurs to me for a second to not fulfill it. So why am I a female preacher who has no hesitation teaching audiences full of men and women? God called me to it. And I have an obligation to fulfill that calling. That is the self-will that's so common in those circles and that Paul is addressing right here. It doesn't matter if God's word forbids me from doing it. It doesn't matter if I violate the principles he's given for how to use my speaking gifts. He called me. He spoke directly to me. And I have to give this message to others. What would Paul say? I think he would say what he said in verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the thing, things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Charismatic self-will confronted by the divine will. Foundational test of whether one's spiritual self-assessment is justified. Let him recognize. Imperative. What are they to recognize? The things which I write, all the things, plural, are the Lord's commandment, singular. All of my instruction is the Lord's commandment. Recognition and submission to the apostolic writings because they are the Lord's commandment. First base, spirituality. First base in using your gift, will you come under apostolic instruction? See, that is the inevitable fruit of believing God is speaking directly to you today. Who needs Paul? Who needs apostolic instruction? I can just eliminate that unnecessary middleman and I'll just go straight with God. What happens? You become the authority. You become higher than Scripture. Now you say, what's the connection between that and what we looked at in chapter 12? Well, it is this. Submitting to Jesus as Lord is the test of whether you're spiritual. The test of whether you have the Spirit of God. Paul says, if anyone thinks they're spiritual, they must recognize the things I'm writing are the Lord's commandment. The spiritual person is going to demonstrate that, prove it, by coming under the lordship of Christ. 
And the great irony in Corinth is the great irony today. It is always those who are emphasizing the spirit, talking about authentic spirituality, who are the least mature and the least discerning. Back to chapter 12 as we, as we wrap up here, thinking about specifically about verse 3. I think this speaks to two types of people in the church. First, to the false convert. The false convert who, who doesn't struggle with assurance but should. The false convert is one who says, Lord, Lord, but isn't, there isn't really any evidence that Christ is indeed on the throne of their heart. Yeah, they'll accept his word and his commandments until those things confront their own feelings, their own understanding, their, their areas in life that would be costly and require sacrifice, not there, just the ones that are convenient. And with a, the life of a false convert, they themselves determine the relationship with Christ. Here are the commands that I'll accept from you. Here are the commands I won't. And they dictate it. They've set themselves up as the authority. And while no one fulfills Christ's commands perfectly, everyone has areas of neglect, weakness, sin in their lives. The false convert is angered by some of the commands of Christ. They resent the commands of Christ. In the words of one pastor, quote, A lot of people think that Christianity is you doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. No, that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed. They have new affections. So verse 3 certainly speaks to those who don't struggle with assurance, but who should. Is Christ really Lord? Do you submit to him wholeheartedly? At the same time, verse 3 should speak a word of encouragement to the genuine convert who is struggling with assurance, but wrongly so, doesn't need to. Why? Because they are obeying the Lord in their life. Not perfectly, but as a pattern and general characteristic of their life, they are worshiping Christ. They love Christ. They are under his lordship. They adopt his wisdom. They, they believe him in trials. They love his word. They love his people. They're grieved by sin. They have all these evidences in their life of obeying Christ, coming under his lordship, and they need to realize there's only a supernatural explanation for that, as Paul told us here in verse 3. You did not wake up one day and realize, oh, Christ is the rightful sovereign ruler of the universe, and I think it's going to be a good idea to start following him. You didn't do that. That's the spirit of God. So... For the person who's a genuine believer and struggling with assurance, they need to recognize what is a supernatural evidence in my life. And I would say, do you come under Christ? Now, you may have heard those two categories and you, you might be saying, even as you describe those two different types of people, now I'm even more confused than ever. I don't know where I'm at. Well, I've always liked this illustration I heard several years ago at the Abide Youth Camp by a pastor. I like to draw on it from time to time because I think it's a very helpful way to evaluate this and think through it in your own life. How would you respond to this question? If you could have anything you want, snap your fingers, you're granted your heart's chief desire, what would it be? I think if a false convert were to answer that question, it would be something like this. I want to be able to live however I want to live with no guilt and still go to heaven. 
In other words, I want, I want to have my life on my terms. I just want to be able to enjoy life without a guilty conscience and go to heaven. A genuine Christian asks the same question. If you could have anything you want, snap your fingers, be granted your heart's chief desire, what would it be? Something like this. I just want Christ and I never want to sin again. I just want Christ and never want to sin again. So you see, the difference isn't that one of them sins and the other one doesn't. The difference isn't that one of them is tempted and the other is, is not. The difference is one of them wishes, oh, I, just, I really want to just enjoy my sin and I really don't like how Christ comes and hinders that. And they get angry and they resent that, but at the same time they want heaven and they want a clean conscience. While the other one sins reluctantly, wishes it was gone from their life, wants more of Christ and looks forward to the day when I'm going to be with Christ and I don't, I don't uh, have to sin. I don't have to deal with the flesh anymore. So that might not bring perfect clarity to you as we went through that, but that, that was, that's just a helpful question to think through in terms of the affections and our, our desires. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we acknowledge your rightful rule, your sovereign authority over us. And for those who are genuine and striving, but who are struggling, open up their eyes to see all the evidences of your spirit at work in their lives so that those who should have assurance would have it. And at the same time, for those who think they know you but don't, make them miserable until they find their rest in you. Do whatever it takes to crush their pride, their self-righteousness, so that their experience and relationship with, with you would no longer be one of anger and frustration, but peace and joy. We thank you for our time together under your word and ask that you would cause it to take root in our, in our hearts and that you would, in your perfect wisdom, apply it to each individual heart here and cause it to bear lasting fruit in our lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.